Wild Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Today we have the opportunity to visit with farmer and expert educator Pat Fraser. Hi Pat. Hi. It's great to visit with you today. Yeah, good that you made it over. We did. We had a beautiful drive through the mountains to get here. Sweet. Pat Fraser has been a biodynamic farmer for over 20 years. She and her family have a small biodynamic homestead, diversified farm, and family dairy in western Colorado where all of the preparation herbs are grown and utilized in making the indigenous biodynamic preparations for her farm organism and western Colorado regional biodynamic group. Permaculture design is another of her passions and its marriage with biodynamics is included in her two-week residential permaculture certification in the summers. Pat is a passionate cultivator of the biodynamic agriculture movement, speaking nationally and regionally at major biodynamic conferences and advising on three national organizations. She is the president of the board of directors of Josephine Porter Institute for Applied Biodynamics, the largest nonprofit distributor of biodynamic preparations in North America. Pat, I, I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while now, and I'm so thrilled we have the opportunity to share with our audience uh, a direct conversation with you about biodynamics and permaculture and all of this amazing work we can be doing more of in our lives and in our homes, regardless of our, our particular setting. So thanks for, for taking the time to visit with You're us. You're welcome. You're welcome. So we have a lot to talk about. What, what do you feel like uh, would be a nice place to start? I think today um, the best place to start is one of the real main principles of either permaculture or biodynamics, which is rhythm. So um, as you know, we just passed the 4th of July. Today is July 6th, and um, we had a very auspicious day on the 3rd of July which was a day where the calendar indicated that in the cosmos there was um, an opposition happening. An opposition is where the moon is here, the earth is here, and on the other side is a planet. And so the moon actually emphasizes and really um, brings forth all of the qualities of whatever planet is over here on the other side of the earth. And on July 3rd, that happened to be Moon opposed Saturn. Now Saturn, when Rudolf Steiner spoke to us about biodynamics, at that time Saturn was the furthest planet out. And so it was the planet where all evolution began with regards to what we now know as the Earth evolution. And when it began evolving, the only quality that Saturn had was warmth. It was the quality of warmth that generated all life. In biodynamics, we have um, an association with certain plants on Earth with certain planets. And those associations are what create some of the herbs and the fermented preparations that we use for fertility and biodynamics. In July, um, usually at about 
um, this time in July, one of the plants that is associated with Saturn is in full bloom. And so on July 3rd, not only was that plant in full bloom, but that plant's associated planet, Saturn, was emphasized by the moon. So what we did on that day was a very rhythmic exercise where we harvested just the flowers of the plant called valerian. And that particular um, plant and its flowers then are fermented into a very potent fertility agent for us that we can use on as small as a backyard garden to as large as 1,000 acre farms. And the quality of that particular preparation that we make is to bring about warmth. So for instance, it's really practical use is for someone who may be growing fruit trees. When we have late frosts in the spring, we can use this per particular preparation to prevent them from having frost. Similarly, if we want to extend our season so that we're growing earlier in the season or later in the season, we can treat our seeds with valerian, and then that valerian can assist those seeds in understanding, creating their own wisdom about how to be able to withstand a larger range of temperature. So it's a very, very practical preparation. And I love making it because it's a craft. It's like making fine wine. And there are several steps to it. And the first step is to harvest just the flowers. And then we put them in water. So this is just the valerian flower. And it's, um, it's on a stem. We would probably take the stem off eventually. And we let it steep in water to get the flowers nice and juicy. After it's steeped in this water for a little while, we grind it up. Um, you can use anything to grind it up, um, like a food mill or whatever. Then we press it. And when we press it, it turns into this really gorgeous brown liquid. And this brown liquid, if you had a smeller on this camera, you'd understand that it smells like a very strangely fragrant wine after it's fermented. It reminds me a little bit of some of those really uh, beautiful, unique balsamic vinegars we can get from yeah, different places. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, it is very resembling of balsamic vinegar, mm -hmm. particularly when it's fermented for a long period of time. So um, where I keep all of my potions, quote unquote, in my root cellar, I have various years of valerian. This is my favorite. This was 2013. And this is actually how it's made. So once the juice is pressed out, it goes into one of these little fermenting cham chambers, which has just a bit of water in here so that it can anaerobically ferment. So this is last year's valerian. And um, so the rhythm in biodynamics is extremely important, and it keeps us grounded on the Earth. It keeps us grounded on the Earth and its relationship to the cosmos. So in the summertime, um, when things are out and blooming and growing, there are many, many, many rhythms there have, um, that have little pulsations in time. In the, um, in the course of the year, 
There are also many rhythms, but they sometimes stretch out. That, of course, we know as the seasons. But um, during the summertime, certain plants that we're using for our fertility here in biodynamics are in bloom, and it's the day to harvest them, and that's what you do on that particular day. And it keeps you in touch, it keeps you grounded, so that you understand your relationship to the cosmos. And it keeps you um, in a sense of relationship that um, uh, keeps you mindful of what it is that we're doing here on Earth. So that was just a little aside that I wanted to share with you, Valerian. Um, one of the principles that, that's really important in biodynamics is on-farm fertility or in-your-garden fertility. In other words, um, it's really not necessary for us to you know, um, supply f uh, our gardens with things that come from a bag. We can actually make our own fertility in our gardens um, and make our own fertility within the organism that is our garden or our farm. And it's very simple to do. And that's what I really love about teaching biodynamics, is teaching that self-sufficiency that we can have as gardeners and farmers. You know, one of the things, Pat, that, that I know you and I have talked about a few times together that excites me almost beyond words is, is the potency and the empowerment this gives us as people. And this doesn't require of us to, to go back to the land necessarily. It doesn't mean we have to, every one of us, become a farmer uh, in our own perhaps suburban neighborhood, even if we're in an urban setting and we have a shared community gardens down the street, there is so much we can be doing to empower ourselves with this fertility, with soil building. And I'm just struck that we, we have right at our fingertips an extraordinarily potent tool when it comes to the biodynamic work. And I know this is a big part of uh, your uh, teaching and your, the work you're doing uh, year by year, uh, getting more and more folks engaged in that practice. Right, and, and I think the other piece that's starting to be coined more and more and more about um, our work on the land is that, you know, we're regenerating. We're not just sustaining, we're regenerating. And there's a regenerative, there are many regenerative practices that, um, whose aim is to build soil. Um, the plants are secondary. The soil is really what we're doing and what we're working with. And um, that's why I really feel strongly about um, some of the new thought things that are coming out in regenerative agriculture around combining disciplines. So um, we've started to coin a term permadynamics and have taught our work first workshop in that particular discipline um, just this spring in Virginia. And um, a lot of people are starting to understand that there's no dogma here about um, these disciplines. If they work and they marry together, we should be using them together. I love it. It reminds me of one of my favorite bumper stickers that says, uh, my karma ran over my dogma. <laughs> and yeah. uh, what maybe some of our audience is familiar with uh, permaculture and, and familiar with biodynamics, but I imagine you know some of our audience may not be familiar with those two terms, concepts, and practices, and I'm wondering, in a nutshell, how would you describe permaculture on the one hand and, and biodynamics on the other? You're, you've already given us a flavor of what biodynamics is, but in a nutshell, how would you explain those two? Well, um, permaculture, to me, permaculture is best described 
as something that man institutes on a particular piece of ground, be it a garden, be it a farm, what, whatever scale, such that we're mimicking nature. We're coming into a piece of ground and we're saying, what is here? What is crossing this land? Be it sun, wind, water, etc., that we can observe as human beings and how is it that it's affecting what's going on in the soil and what's going on in the plants that are there already. Once we discover that kind of really deep observation on any piece of land, from um, a backyard garden to a rooftop garden to, a thou to thousands of acres of farmland, we then become way more educated stewards about how to manage that land in its best, in its best form. How can it manage itself in its best form with our guidance such that we're just, we're just lightly stewarding it. We're not imposing, we're just lightly stewarding it. There are many, many techniques and I actually think that permaculture is best described in, in the flesh. So I think we'll mm -hmm. probably go outside and start taking a few of those little demonstrations to heart. That's beautiful. And, and before we go outside, I'm really excited to get out there, but uh, before we go outside, what with, with the practice of biodynamics, how would you describe that uh, concisely to a, a person who wasn't familiar with it? So biodynamics is really um, taking the practice of agriculture one step forward to re-spiritualizing the earth. And what we do in, 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 in having that come forth in our stewardship practices is to understand that um, land can be viewed as an organism, just like we can. So land can be viewed as an organism that breathes, that digests, that has a will force, that moves, that changes, that is enlivened. Um, and we can create that in a vision for a piece of land. So a farm as an organism is one of the primary principles of biodynamics. And creating that organism is our, is our task. To do that, we understand also a more of a, a viewpoint of um, geocentrism. So that means that if you're a plant and you're growing on Earth, you have a certain perspective growing on Earth that's different than us humans who understand that the Earth is orbiting the sun. From a plant's perspective, a plant understands the whole of its connection as it's growing on Earth with the cosmos, with all of the planets, with the stars, with the Milky Way, and with the, the, um, all of the constellations that comprise our, um, our solar system. So that viewpoint is how we actually approach working with plants in biodynamics and allowing them to best express themselves. There are many, many ways that plants tell us that they're influenced by the cosmos, both in the way that they grow, in their rhythms, even in the face of their flowers. So that's a, another really strong tenet of, of biodynamics. The third one is that we utilize the plants in a certain way that expresses their archetype to make homeopathic medicines for the earth. And that is our fertility in biodynamics, along with just basic good organic practices. 
So these three principles really marry one another to create the environment where we bring spirit into, into agriculture, utilizing um, this organismic approach, utilizing the, the connection that we have with the rest of the cosmos, and understanding the archetypal, archetypical energies of certain plants that we use as fertility. Um, anthroposophy is the underlying um, spiritual form of um, biodynamics, and anthroposophy means anthropos, which is the man, anthropos sophia, which is the wisdom. So the wisdom of man is anthroposophy. And that was coined by Rudolf Steiner back in 1924. Um, it's, it's not a complicated um, way of approaching agriculture. It's, um, it's easy to learn. Uh, it makes you feel very self-sufficient and uh, connected, grounded. Thank you so much, Pat. You know, one of the things that really strikes me, I don't think I mentioned in the introduction of you and your background that you are also a nurse practitioner and you have a very solid Western medicine scientific background and more and more of my friends, colleagues and mentors are helping me understand that a couple centuries ago we had this profound transition from an alchemical worldview to a chemical worldview and perhaps something was lost along that uh, transition. Certainly we, we've made many gains in many arenas to be celebrated for sure. At the same time we've had a lot of negative consequences as well uh, in this age of chemistry and it strikes me that there's something going on with biodynamics that is helping us reconnect to a perhaps deeper or wiser understanding of what it means to be living on planet Earth that in many respects we've, we've lost in modern culture. Mm -hmm. And we're seeking that connection. Yeah. So the, the idea that a plant living on Earth has, has a body and has a wise person in that body is, um, is something that is attainable by all of us. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easy for us to understand that when we connect with plants. Um, and connecting with the idea that their wisdom can be accessed by us and can be promoted by us is another way of us connecting with everything that really is us. It really is us. There is really no separation there. We're all the same. And so um, part of that is a principle called homeopathy, which is where you take a small essence of what may be something that the plant needs for its wisdom to develop, and you give that plant that space of wisdom to take in what it needs through the compost pile, through the biodynamic preparations, to perform at its very highest, best self. Then when we eat that plant, we're performing at our very best, highest self. So it's, it's, um, it's a connected way of looking at things instead of a mechanistic way of looking at there's something wrong, let's correct it. Um, it's more there's something wise, let's access it. I'm making notes as, as rapidly as I can with all of this. Well, this is so wonderful. What do you think? Should, should we head outside? I think we should. Yeah. Sounds great. 
Okay, so just to orient you where we are here in the landscape, um, this is a, a permaculture gilded orchard that's about 16 years old. And what you'll notice here is if you pan this way and just look behind us, you'll notice that this does not look like any normal orchard. What you'll see in here is a very diverse mixture of plants that are living in kind of a tribal nature together that complement one another. So it consists of a canopy, which is all of the fruit trees back here, and there are apples, peaches, um, cherries, both sour and sweet, uh, plums, and then there are also little bush berries over here, which you can see that are Nanking cherries that are actually grown mostly for the birds. Um, there are several um, medicinal herbs in here. One is comfrey, which is a dynamic, we call this a dynamic accumulator of nutrients. And we plant it everywhere in permaculture landscapes specifically to accumulate nutrients. Another one is this little plant, which is alfalfa. Again, a dynamic accumulator, a nitrogen fixer, which helps to build soil beneath what we're standing on. Um, further down in the orchard, there are some other plants um, that are also nitrogen fixers, both shrubs as well as ground cover. What we're standing in right here is what's called a swale. This is how we capture and store water is one of the principles of permaculture. Capturing and storing energy in the form of water is extremely important in this particular landscape because we only get 13 inches of rain a year. So one way of capturing water is to make just a simple ditch instead of a straight ditch where most people here in the western slope irrigate their, their um, fruit trees. This ditch actually follows the contour of the land and therefore the water moves very slowly and sinks very deeply and nourishes these fruit trees and all of the things that are on the floor all at once. So this acts like a huge lens underground, capturing and storing water and nutrients for the trees. Um, further down in the orchard, there is a, a whole bank of nitrogen fixing shrubs and the way that those release nitrogen is to just be chopped off in the springtime, then their nodules on their roots feed into the soil and release nitrogen for the fruit trees. So this is just a very graphic example of how permaculture works to build soil. Um, it works by not disturbing the soil as much as possible and by keeping things permanent and as much as permanent as possible, so as many perennials as possible. And when we, when we move down into the cultivation beds, you'll see some permanent culture that is um, food that keeps coming up year after year after year. Well, one of the things I love about a system like this, Pat, is it really makes explicit the super abundance of the conditions on Earth. For example, there is a whole lot of nitrogen in the atmosphere, right? It's a very abundant element in our atmosphere. And to have plants right here in this place 
pulling it down and getting it into the soil, you don't need to bring in an artificial nitrogen-based fertilizer, no. right? Which is, of course, a multi-billion-dollar industry, and you know we've we've made certain decisions over the course of the last several decades for a variety of reasons. But we have an opportunity to uh, return our agriculture back to something that's in in closer rhythm with nature cycles and is taking, you could say, better advantage of the natural abundance of this place. Right, and you can imagine how much how much carbon is being sequestered here. Yeah. We never we never turn this over. We might graze it, uh -huh. just so that it would regenerate a little bit, but that's about the only turnover that happens here. Um, might mow it down a little bit. Sure. But mostly, I spend time in my hammock watching it grow. Uh huh. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We'll walk through the orchard this way. Okay. Take you on a little tour by the camera, and end up in the perennial bed. Excellent. Snack on the uh, cherries. Oh, most of them are an example of the diversity of a cultivation field. Um, what we're standing on here is a cover crop of rye which was about this tall about a week ago and we mowed it off and we just are leaving it like this to decompose a little bit into the soil. After it decomposes a little bit We'll rough up the soil just a teeny bit, and then we'll grow another cover crop in it. And then this soil will be prepared for food next year. Other than um, that, it really doesn't get any other treatment. Um, so instead of having us planted fence post to fence post, we strategically improve certain strips of soil in this field so that they're primed for food production and we get the very best food production we can. Mm -hmm. We also have a, a really diverse strip in here of um, different perennials that provide several different things. Number one, they provide medicinal herbs. Um, this is St. John's wort here, almost coming into bloom. This is the valerian we spoke about. Uh, further over here is yarrow, which is a a very diverse um, medicinal herb. There's a bunch down in here too. Mm -hmm. huh? And yeah. they're all growing together. And you'll notice that there aren't any spaces on the soil. We want to keep the soil covered like a blanket, you know, to keep it to keep it protected. And if you continually agitate the soil with tillers and machines and things like that, 
then it never has a chance to make the glue that pulls everything together that nourishes the roots of the plants. So we keep everything covered as much as possible. Um, in this particular bed, you will walk through and find butterflies, ladybugs, parasitic wasps, honeybees, um, fragrant flowers, things that you can enjoy all the time. The other thing that's growing in here that's a little known um, benefit is this is a, a perennial nitrogen fixing legume <coughs> called sanfoin. It's an amazing forage for animals because it doesn't cause bloat. And it's also a very valuable seed crop. So in this particular bed, I have two of the eight biodynamic herbs that I need to make fertility. I have a seed crop that provides me with an income. I have other medicinal herbs that provide me with medicine. There are fruit trees growing in amongst all of these um, that provide me fruit. In the ground cover further up this bed, we have strawberries and rhubarb. So mm. most, most everything that's growing here is either edible, has a medicinal value, or has a nutritional value for animals and the soil and us. Mm. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And so even though you know, it looks very wild. We want it to look wild. This is nature. This is nature reconstructed in a permaculture-esque manner so that we want it to stay wild like this. We don't want it to be disturbed all the time. Now come with me. This side of the production bed is where we actually are growing food for, for production this year. Again, you don't see any, any bare ground. I don't mind that the weeds are here. They don't take up too much nutrient. In fact, they actually mine up nutrients for the plants. In the midst of it, you see this long, long hedgerow. This long hedgerow has all berries, cherries, currants, raspberries, all kinds of things in here for us to eat. And so it also pulls in diversity. It pulls in birds, it pulls in insects, it acts as a water lens, captures water. All through in here, this is cover crop that will also then be turned over. I have potatoes, peas, garlic, onions, greens, etc., etc., and then another hedgerow. So these hedgerows are really important in permaculture because they do something in the landscape to create a block for the wind, which we can feel right now. Yep. And these hedgerows have diversity in them, as well as the windbreak that allows the landscape to settle a little bit. Instead of being whoosh across it, it settles. It's just a little bit gentler, sweeter, nicer than it would be if this were just this, the meadow that it was when we first moved here. And then right below your feet where you're standing, 
This is a trial in here that I'm um, doing for Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance where I'm growing several different kinds of heritage wheat, sorghum, corn, sunflowers, beans, all to see how well they do here. Um, so that if they, if they do well, then we know that this will be a good thing to, to breed seeds that are, that are adapted to this particular climate sure. here. Yep. And the only treatment that this field receives is the biodynamic preparation for fertility. Okay, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. There's a theme running through all of this of the, the local knowledge and relationships that emerge even in the plants themselves. Right. Right, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of solution across an entire state or continent or even region. Right. So we're really trying to breed seeds here in this climate for this climate that are adapted, that understand what it's like to grow at 6,800 feet and 13 inches of rain. Yeah. Not that know what it's like to grow in Oregon with no sunshine, acid soils, all those kinds of things. Right. This yeah. is specific to us. This is indigenous wisdom in the plants. Yeah. The same thing happens out here in this pasture behind us. This pasture has an, uh, an indigenous wisdom that feeds the animals, at this point only one, <laughs> who reside here. And the, the wisdom that comes through the manure with this animal that resides here, my dairy cow, sh that wisdom in that manure is what makes the fertility on this farm. So what she eats, the plants that she eats, create a much better, much more well-adapted manure for this farm, only for this farm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And so, so that's kind of the, that's the permaculture in action that I love to talk about. Yeah. Because when we first moved here, this whole entire landscape that you're panning around seeing looked just like that pasture. Uh-huh. This is all 16 years old. Yeah. Beautiful. On 13 inches of rain. Absolutely beautiful. So, yeah. that's what we can do with regenerative agriculture practices. And, and we can do that fairly simply. And there has been no importation of fertility here except what's here on this farm for many, many years now. Probably a decade. Absolutely remarkable. So. Pat, I'd love to ask you, thinking again about our, our friends and our audience who are perhaps living in a suburban setting or an urban setting, what, what can we encourage our millions upon millions of urban dwelling friends to do to help this restoration and regeneration process? I think the main thing that um, is, is important um, around urban landscapes is to take one small corner of that urban landscape and let it be wild. Let it be wild. Don't yeah. do anything to it. Yeah. Don't make it be lawn. Don't make it be bushes. Don't make it be weed mat and mulch. Just let it do what it's going to do. And here on this farm, the majority of what we have here is wild. Yeah. And, um, and so it's fairly easy to Im import that concept in. But in urban landscapes, it's very manicured and managed. Yeah. And that's okay 
for what it is, but there's always got to be at least a little corner of any landscape that can be left wild. Mm. Let the weeds grow. Let the shrubby, um, weedy trees grow in there and the bushes and see what happens. And that place is where all of the magic happens. Oh, beautiful. That place is where all of the elemental beings, which are behind all this work that we're doing in the spiritual world, coalesce and make themselves known. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. I think that's the main thing that people can do in urban landscapes is just to let a little bit of it be wild and, uh, and, really, and really cultivate that. Really say that's as special as this vegetable garden that I'm growing. Yeah. Easily. Easily. One of the things I gather from my exposure to biodynamics and even permaculture over the years is that it ultimately is giving us humans a beautiful invitation and a big wide door to walk through for our own spiritual nourishment. And uh, it, it just brings me great joy thinking that more and more of us will be able to experience this directly as, as we transform our culture in the coming years. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, are, we have the opportunity and we have the gift as the stewards to be able to create these spaces and maintain these spaces and say that this is what's valuable. This is what's valuable. Okay. I'm, I'm reminded of this uh, quote that President uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, said uh, almost a hundred years ago, not quite, and he said, a nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. And it strikes me, there's probably a corollary to that statement, and, and it's a nation that heals its soil, heals itself. And I think we are experiencing this as we see more and more friends and students and who become teachers uh, help to, to proliferate this understanding, this, this humble wisdom uh, into communities all over. It's quite something. Yeah. And of course, Pat, you've taught so many folks, it's just remarkable to, to think about that the e ecological impact you're having through those networks of, of teachers now and folks who are stewards in places all over. Yeah, this, um, this place is my, um, it's my respite, it's my food, it's my soul, it's, it feeds me like no, like no other and I give back to it. It's a reciprocal relationship that I'm having here that is such an incredible gift. And every day, I, I have a prayer for this place that I say to it uh, very often on a, on a pretty regular basis that is, um, you know, I, I will always love you, I will never hurt you, and I will never leave you. Oh, that's so beautiful. And that's, that's, that's kind of how we live together here. Yeah. Well, let me uh, take the opportunity to just remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And right now we are visiting with Pat Frazier at her uh, Peace and Plenty Farm on the West Slope of Colorado. And uh, want to make sure to give a shout out to some of the sponsors who are making this podcast series possible. That includes Waylay Waters, Patagonia, Earth Coast Productions, the Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, the Lidge Family Foundation, Purium, and Equal Exchange. 
and uh, want to also invite uh, our audience to get involved and help uh, support this effort yourselves. We now have a monthly giving program and are inviting folks to make a contribution at any level that works well for you. Uh, also, uh, one of the benefits of being a listener is that you can get uh, free downloads of all of our electronic products, ebooks and audiobooks. Just go to whyonearth.org and use the code EARTHDAY, which works every day, um, to get your free downloads. And you can also, at whyonearth.org, go to the uh, support section if you'd like to join the monthly giving program. And I want to be sure to mention, too, that for those of you who would like to learn more about biodynamics and about the work Pat is doing, uh, you can get more information at jpibiodynamics.org. And that's the letter J, letter P, letter I, biodynamics.org. And we'll put that in the show notes for you as well. Pat, my, my notes are full up here, and it's just <laughs> it's so wonderful knowing that because of your experience and expertise as a teacher, you're able to convey so much information in a relatively short period of time. And to be able to not only go into biodynamics, but also permaculture and how these two really work together and become an incredible synergy together, um, my goodness, what a what a gift. Thanks for sharing that with us today. You're welcome. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Of course. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm wondering before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to share with our, our audience in general? Well, I think the, the thing that I alluded to when we first started the podcast was to not be afraid to marry these concepts together to be able to understand when something feels right around agriculture, gardening, it usually feels right because we're doing no harm. It usually feels right because something is drawing you into the garden that catches your eye, it's a smell, it's a feeling, it's, a, it's just an ambiance that says something's different here. And I think that that marriage of these um, regenerative practices where, where we're truly creating something because we know it's right for the soil and truly making fertility because we know we can do that ourselves, that marriage together is something that just feels right. I tell my kids every now and then, you know, if I check out here in a little while, it's okay because I've done right with the earth. I've done right with the earth. I, I, I've done all I can to take care of her. And um, I think keeping that, that still small voice in the back of our heads of, of not doing harm can, can just possibly turn us over to the next evolutionary step that we have here on the planet to regenerating the planet. Hopefully somebody will come and visit us here. She's being pretty shy, but so this is Diamond. Um, Diamond is the large, very lumbering, very gentle, wise presence of fertility here on the farm. This is my dairy cow. She's about three and a half, almost four years old now. 
um, and lingering over in the shadows and hopefully she'll come over and, and visit us is her brand new heifer calf of about three weeks now. That's sweet pea. And uh, these guys run the fertility of the farm. Um, she provides us with the highest quality protein we have on the farm. Milk, cheese, butter, ice cream, sour cream, nice. all kinds of different kinds of cheeses. Um, depending on what sex of calf she has, if she has um, male calves, we slaughter those at about two years for meat. And um, in the meantime, we get all of her great fertility here. Um, one of the real important um, aspects of biodynamics and permaculture is making sure that the fertility on the farm matches the scale of the farm. So like if you're in the city and you have a backyard garden, the fertility that you can create there might be a chicken or a duck. Um, and, uh, you know, and that might be the exact scale that you need. Here on this farm, we have six acres of pasture that really does pretty much do about the right scale of supply and demand for one cow. We could potentially have two, as many as three, but not much more than that. Mm -hmm. And so that means that all the grass that's growing here is what she needs for her life for almost the entire year. So we rotate her back and forth on these pastures so that we can hay them sometimes and we can keep the grass back so that she has fresh pasture all year, so that we wean the calf to the pasture when we finally get to a really heavy milking cycle. And um, then her fertility in the form of manure goes into the compost pile and recirculates on back onto the farm. You know, some of our audience may not really uh, be as familiar with this notion of regenerative agriculture and what this means in terms of uh, ruminant manure going into the soil building process. And perhaps you could describe that for folks. So the ruminant manure is a very different kind of manure because it goes through four stomachs. And as it goes through four stomachs, the cow regurgitates the manure in the form of cud and that first digestion, second digestion, third and fourth digestion are what finally culminates in cow manure. Each time that that um, cud is generated into a, do a new stomach, all of the stomachs of a cow are made up of the shapes of nature. So one cow's stomach is a waterfall, another cow's stomach is, um, is a uh, honeycomb, another cow's stomach is a, a, a kind of a fur, um, a, a pillared uh, interior that's kind of like the interior of our gastrointestinal tract with lots of little pili. Um, and those shapes in nature are replicated, replicated, touching all of that plant material. And that plant material and the interior of the cow stomach are communicating intelligence back and forth. All the while, when the cow is ruminating, that's what we call. That's why we call it ruminating. They're actually meditating when they're out on pasture, and and a, um, a form of that meditation has to do with the fact that most biodynamic cows keep their horns. Um, their horns actually are a really important organ for them 
to be able to communicate with the earth. Um, and so to take a cow's horn off dulls the animal, but we keep them on because we want them to have that intelligence. So that ruminating process with the manure and as it comes back on the ground signals when it comes back on the ground a certain rhythm within that manure. Spring manure is different than winter manure. Um, has a different quality because in in winter we don't have all of this. You know, we have hay. And so the, the quality of a manure of a ruminant animal is something that's wholly different than an animal who has one stomach or two stomachs. And that's why we use the cow. They're very meditative. They're like they're like an organ of digestion on legs, really. That's really what they are. They're just gigantic organs of digestion moving through the landscape and meditating the landscape as they eat it. Um, in the meantime, you know, they produce this amazing, um, besides the manure, this amazing quality in milk. Yeah. Milk is one of the best fertilizers that you can put on the ground. In fact, when I stir biodynamic preparations, I often stir them in milk, her milk, so that that intelligence that's coming onto the land can come in very different forms, milk being one. It's also alive. We don't homogenize or pasteurize the milk. We eat it, we eat it raw. We make all the yogurts and cheeses and butter and everything out of it raw. The only thing that we do with the milk to heat it or change it in any way is when we make yogurt we displace the normal bacteria in the milk and replace it with a new bacteria that we specifically culture to make yogurt. But fresh fresh cheeses are, it's one of the, I mean we eat like kings. We work yeah. a lot but we eat like kings on yeah. this farm. Well, there, so, there, there's this uh, theme running through all of this too of the, the microbiome doing its work in the the cows' stomachs, in the soil, the the living uh, critters, in the the live milk, the culture of the milk, and it, it gives a whole deeper meaning to this notion of a land of milk and honey, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> there's actually a milk and honey biodynamic spray too that we use. So, yeah, and it it, it all it all flows together. You know, um, there not too long ago there was a article is about a decade now as well as in, in, in still a nurse um, about the hygiene principle being something that was starting to to be examined as maybe not so great for our kids maybe it's not so great for everything to be so cleansed up with bleach and detergent and sterilized maybe it would be such a great idea for them to just kind of eat a little dirt on a farm every now and then to create the conditions of diversity inside of our gut biomes and that perhaps that would help their immune systems to get educated. Uh, that's, that was published 10 years ago and now it's, it's clearly been documented over and over and over again the dangers of sterilizing our guts um, from antibiotic use in animals that we're eating. So, um, here, that just doesn't apply at all, not at all. Beautiful. Sweet Pea's got a little slice of heaven here. Yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs>